welcome to this session on samsara, nirvana and Buddha nature. What a combination. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was thinking of this title of the text, title of the book, Samsara, Nirvana and Buddha Nature. It's lined up very well. Uh, and it's a it's a it's quite a com- combination. So as usual we'll have a few minutes of quiet time so that we could settle our mind by whatever means that is comfortable to each of you, be that anchoring the mind on the breath or focusing the mind on any particular part of the body, any sensation, any idea, or merely settling into a simple state of openness. Maybe at this point we will do the homage to Shakyamuni Buddha together. Let's start with setting our motivation clear, supported by the homage prayer that we did, that of connecting with the sentient beings, fellow sentient beings, as well as as space, and feeling grateful to them expressing gratitude for their being the main reason by which we have Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, these marvelous teachings. In their own wretched condition of being submerged in samsara, lost in the confusion and what not, those were the very reasons that spurred the Buddhas, put them on the path, underwent all those hardships, and eventually proceeded through the path like we here in the Heart Sutra. Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, and then eventually finding themselves in the state of Buddhahood. In the words of the Buddhas themselves, they owe their Buddhahood, state of full knowing, state of full freedom, 
instead of full ability, at least on their part, to be of benefit to sentient beings. They owe that to the sentient beings. And sentient beings are kind in that respect as well, as well as in other ways, be that in this life or in other lifetimes, in so many various ways. In some, t- in some way, there's no need for the sentient beings to change anything about them in whatever situation, condition, condition they may be, even as wretched as they sometimes can be, being swayed, overwhelmed by afflictions or not. They don't have to change a little bit to make us feel benefited by, and through that, feel grateful towards them, and thus be moved to do something. And then when reminded of the sufferings that we all share together, we have no other choice but to work towards repaying their kindness, repaying their having benefited us, and keep benefiting us, and having been the main reasons for having Buddhas and their teachings, Bodhisattvas and their examples. We are left with no other choice if we are a thinking, sensible people to be grateful to them and do our utmost to to repay their kindness. And as we all know, there can be so many ways of doing so, short term, long term, but the one that's the surest, that can really lead them to a state of full awakening, complete freedom from suffering, being not subject or slave to the afflictions, down to the subtle traces. It's by working towards Buddhahood beginning with generating bodhicitta through efforts such as this, by making time in listening to dharma sharings, discussing dharma, thinking dharma, living dharma, and thus keeping on it, keeping at it, day by day, year by year, lives by lives, and making our way, to, however slow it may be, to eventually to full awakening. While at the same time, with the aid of bodhicitta and the wisdom of understanding emptiness, we would still be continuously be open to benefiting sentient beings. That is such a wonderful path, such a wonderful start, such a wonderful action, proceeding, and such wonderful, beautiful result, which benefits everyone. So let's all aspire to be able to repay their kindness in the truest sense of the word, in the best way we can, by achieving full awakening. For their gift of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and their wonderful teachings to us, that saves us, that makes us sensible, that makes us see 
ourselves more clearly through our own delusions. So welcome. <laughs> this is Samsara Nirvana and Buddha Nature session. And the only way I relate to this and I remember of this is something very different than I will be doing today. So, <laughs> so anyway, I welcome you all to this session. And since Venerable is away for a few weeks, this session I've been asked to lead and have been given the choice to pick any topic, any subject from the book. Uh, and I, I see that Venerable has pushed through this all these many years, maybe, and now have reached the 13th chapter, which is the, the penultimate chapter. So... Uh, I would leave the auspiciousness for her to finish it with you uh, and others who are viewing online. Uh, and I will go through the previous chapter, the chapter that we went through last time. And then going forward, I may be jumping up and down but sticking to samsara, I have no choice but to. Nirvana, I aspire to, because I have Buddha nature, just as everybody has. So that's what I will be doing. So you have to bear with me. <laughs> For these uh, many weeks, until Venerable is back. So we'll be looking at mind and its potential. But before we do that, I want to connect to the motivation that I let you through, let you through, by think, thanking sentient beings and being grateful for them for their very reason of having made possible the Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, and their teachings. This is such a wonderful twist of thinking as well as reality. If it weren't for sentient beings, there would be no Buddhas. There would be no reason for them to strive that hard and endure all that long. But they did and pushed through. They kept on keeping on until they attained a secure place. And then 
the moving goes more slow, more smoothly. Until then, it was very tough. Yeah, there is a sutra called, by the way, I'm referring to Tibetan collections of mine, so uh, bear with me uh, for not having ready English rendition of all things I'll be making up. <laughs> As I go, I will be uh, translating. There is a sutra called Pate, Pate I haven't come across an English. I think I did when I was proofreading one of Venerable's books, but uh, I could not find it. There also she has quoted this sutra. It's called Pasa Chulungche Chiechabe Do, which roughly translates to soda, salt, water, or yeah, water that has salt, soda salt, something like that. A sutra, sutra of soda salt, let's call it. <laughs> there, Buddha speaks in first person, saying, those who revere me and those who really cherish the teachings. And through that, they strive in ethical conduct and also eventually inspire to generate compassion, great compassion, that too complemented with wisdom, clear wisdom, understanding what reality is. And who engage through these in constantly revering the Buddhas. They must know that I have achieved this with a reason to benefit sentient beings. These kaya, these pure body of mind is solely for their benefit. And therefore, whoever, even for the slightest bit, harbor any sense of harming sentient beings, how would they be calling themselves a Buddhist or someone who reveres, who appreciates Buddha? It is contradiction in what they say, think, and what they do if they bring even the slightest harm to sentient beings. Because I have arisen into what I am now in this body 
in this capability because of sentient beings and for the sentient beings. Therefore, who instead benefits sentient beings, even if that may be a very, very small one, that would be a genuine offering to me. That would be a genuine offering to me. And if one happens to be, on the one hand, harming sentient beings, harboring harmful intention, Yet at the same time, no matter how sumptuous, gorgeous array of offerings they may offer to me, they would never become a genuine offering. Because of who this is coming from, what they are doing, and how they are earning it, or what they are engaged in with regard to sentient beings. And uh, I will not go through all. Somewhere down, that's quite intriguing to hear Buddha saying again in first person, saying, I and sentient beings share in our joy and sorrow. That shows emotions in Buddhas. Sorrow in the sense that when we engage in harming sentient beings, that would definitely displease the Buddhas. Like generating compassion, kind of brings our mind into a, into a somber mode, at least for a while, though definitely rooted in the strength. Yet the immediate reaction or the immediate feeling it generates is some, some kind of a jolt, some kind of a jolt to the peace of your mind by seeing sufferings of the sentient beings. That's why it's called karuna, which translates to tego, that which prevents joy. At least at the moment you are generating it. Although a sorrow of a totally different, different type. Sorrow that has been voluntarily generated, not involuntarily, what do you call thrown upon. So, so there he says, I and sentient beings share in, in joy and sorrow. So therefore, who engages in or harbors intention to harm others or, or are open to harming others without any sense of restraint or any sense of caution whatsoever, how would they be at the same time aspiring to what I say, to what I have achieved? How could that be? I achieved this state of f- full awakening, full security, full, ke- full capa- capacity, 
by relying on sentient beings. All the activities that I engaged in, all the Buddha deeds that I engaged in, they all they all were done genuinely, deep-seatedly for the sentient beings. And through that, I became Buddha. So this is a very interesting what do you call, segue to compassion and sense of gratefulness towards sentient beings. And that really is, it is the reality. There's nothing wrong, not, no, no false in it, falsity in it. And likewise, those, likewise, we are all aspiring to become Buddha. That is the only way by cherishing sentient beings to the best we can, and sometimes, not sometimes, in a way, to a totally radical extent than we can right now imagine. Then the, 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 the amount of dharma, at least I cannot say for you, but in case of mine, my practice is more like a luxury practice. In Tibetan we call that jichu, kibichu. Luxury practice, or when you are feeling okay, then you then you remember Dharma. When you are in distress, then which is when you definitely need Dharma and should you totally dis, dispense it and return back, return back, hundred and eighty degree back to the old, untamed, unruly guy or girl. <laughs> So, and that's very clear in the teachings that we had from Gishi Ishala when he was dealing with thoughts, uh, with the grounds and paths of the Bodhisattvas, how Bodhisattvas really endure hardship, but with courage and with great uh, sense of purpose and compassion, how their great compassion can really overcome all hardships and eventually lend them to a relatively secure state. Secure in the sense that they begin to chip off once for all from the lump of afflictions from ourselves to the to their very roots, and, and then thus they keep going on like that and eventually realize the awakening they have been so wholeheartedly seeking. But at the same time, in the meantime, they were not hurried, they were not rushed, because they are so settled in their mentality that no matter what, at any given time, in any situation, all I have to do is serve others, be that when I become Buddha or not, and in between. The whole purpose is to serve others. That's such a sense of courage that they hold within them, and that's what sees, carries them through all kinds of hardships, and thus be able to really overcome overcome the, the troublesome 
culprits. Trouble, troublesome, yet almost like a treasury, we hold them and give them the, the core of our heart, a place to, to live in, <laughs> like self-centeredness and self-grasping. And then try to kind of really let them be present in everything that we do. Like, let them rule, let them rule through us. Okay, so that said, that was the source of my inspiration. And I really was moved when I saw Buddha speaking in, in first person and saying, I share sorrow and, and joy with sentient beings. This is something very important to remember, how it will be displeasing to Buddhas and Bodhisattvas if we harm others and also ourselves indulge in negativities. So that should be yet another extra factor in, in moving us in the right direction and being the practitioners that we aspire to be and, and be an example to each other. So, that said, we'll return to chapter 12, Mind and Its Potential, and we'll be sticking as Venerable does in this particular chapter, I think only to, mainly to Sutra, not moving into Vajrayana as uh, so much. So here, with regard to the mind's potential, I will again refer to a work, a commentary done by the seventh Dalai Lama. This is my first ever, I mean, well, I recite uh, certain prayers, those were comp composed by the seventh Dalai Lama, but in terms of a commentary, volume that I have studied. This is the first <laughs> of by the seventh Dalai Lama that I studied, which is a commentary on the sutra that we recite uh, one of the days after lunch, the sutra that we call Wisdom Going Beyond. Going beyond. Yeah. But uh, in other translations it is called the the Sutra at the hour of death. The Sutra at the hour of death. Yeah. And that's, that's the reason why there is this question, how should the Bodhisattva's mind be at the time of death? Whereas the time of death is not somewhere far away, any time. So that's why in the in the in the commentary, the seventh Dharma says, "Well, it says at the time of death, but that is any time, all time, <laughs> not something, something waiting there for us to reach eventually. But it could it could be any time. So, more than how should their mind, how should we see their mind to be at the time of death? It's more like what's what's their mental men, mental state like." In a, 
in just any given time. So in any way, from that uh, commentary, I'll be I'll be sharing on related topics that we come through as we push through this. So I will not be reviewing in the sense of kind of making really giving you a, a, a summarized form of the whole uh, chapter in a go, but uh, I'll be reading it, and as I as we come across related subjects, I'll be sharing from whatever I know. Once we have recognized the unsatisfactory nature of samsara and oh, by the way we are on page chapter 12 page 277 Once we have recognized the unsatisfactory nature of samsara and identified its causes the question arises is liberation possible There's a lot in there already <laughs> The unsatisfactory nature of samsara is not the superficial unsatisfactory nature and the, the surface unsatisfactoriness of it, but rather more than that, deeper than that. The very fact of our being slaves to our own afflictions, our bondage to this, to this. array of afflictions who are or which all of which are in the words of his holiness the dalai lama the the proteges of self-centeredness and self-grasping they are the proteges right so you know if if you are capable who to attack If your ability is not as much, then you may be struggling with them, dealing with them singly, one by one to one. But if you are capable, where you should go to is their boss. Once the boss is captured, the prodigies have no, no other choice but to be, but to surrender. Actually, in the same text, uh, the seventh Dalai Lama also says that for some, for some who are capable, then the way to go in dealing with afflictions would be to deal with the hardest ones, the hardest ones, not not the easiest ones, but the hardest ones. Because once the hardest ones are overcome, the easier ones will be naturally overcome, and that will make it more easy. So in any case, this unsatisfactory nature of samsara is the, the bondage to the cyclic existence, bondage to the cycle of birth and death, 
propelled by afflictions and karma induced by that. Or, in short, our slavery to the afflictions rooted in, we may say rooted in self-grasping, but from this Prasangika Madhimika point of view, self-grasping itself is counted among the afflictions. So all the rest of them are its protégés, including self-centeredness, although it may be the second in rank, <laughs> but nonetheless still protégé of self-grasping. And self-grasping is quite tricky. It could even come in the company of virtues also and support them also, yet nonetheless supports only so much doesn't go that far. <laughs> it kind of gives, gives the afflictions, gives, gives the virtues that it may be existing in, in check from, from growing more. So, recognizing unsatisfactory nature of samsara and identifying its causes, that's something we have to really work hard on. Merely repeating what Buddha has said is not enough. And that's the reason why Buddha warned in his own words saying, don't respect me, don't, don't follow my words out of mere respect, but rather follow them by finding their truth, on, by finding the truth by yourself. That's the only way by which these dharmas will become our dharmas, our own dharmas. And here, with regard to even with regard to thinking of ben benefiting sentient beings in whatever to whatever extent we can, and if possible, even to to, to the level of achieving full attain, full awakening for them, for their sake, it all starts with. First, seeing for sure, for real, this unsatisfactory nature of what we call samsara. Because without that, we will not be moved by the grievances of the sentient beings in the way it should be. We will still be just merely uh, hovering over the... Uh, the, the superficial sufferings, and maybe even uh, envying others who are in fact are suffering by way of seeing their suffering of change, not as suffering, but rather as something, something admirable. And if that's the case, then there's no choice. We can go even deeper down and see our celebrity to the afflictions rooted in the self-grasping. So anyway, supposing that we have recognized it and identified it, then the natural question is, now, now that I found the cause, could it be overcome? And it is so beautiful in Dhammapada, when Buddha explains his experience of attaining Buddhahood, saying, I found the house builder, 
Now you don't need to build the house anymore, right? And I'm free. You don't need to come and build the house for me. The house of samsaric birth and death. Craving has been caught doing being the main culprit in the in the lower uh, in in the lower tenets perspective. Or in the higher tenets perspective, it will be the ignorance, the craving rooted further into ignorance that has been seen clearly to be the cause for this for for building the samsaric home for us. So, so we have to investigate. First, we have to first connect, connect this, our connect to our ourselves with our sufferings, with our condition of of how in its in its real sense, in its real nature, so miserable, just a producing a product a producing company of miseries upon miseries. Right? First we have to see that uh, on ourselves and then see what causes it. And if we could then connect the two as the cause and effect, if we could see their causal relationship, as Kishi Tapkala was uh, emphasizing, the causal relationship is the cause is succeeded by this result, and there is a relationship of infallibility, be that in the sense of absence or in the sense of presence. If there is the cause, the, the result comes. If, if there is the if, if there is if there is the result, then for sure that cause should have preceded it. If there is no cause, there is no chance for the result to come. If we could, through our own experiment, see that relationship of infallibility to to each other in terms of one succeeding and the one preceding, and being bound with this uh, relationship of either present or absent, so that we have to see for clearly. And then what we are calling the main culprit as self-grasping ignorance, whatever, that needs to be identified very clearly. And that is a, an affliction, but in, a, in and of itself, one may not call it affliction in the common conventional sense. Although, when we say self-grasping, I don't know, the word itself is that descriptive of what we really mean. It's almost like grasping to yourself, <laughs> but it is more than that. It is grasping to an identity, an identity that is, that we kind of apply to everything, that we try to impose, project on everything, including ourselves. And that first needs to be understood properly and then see how it is connected or not 
with the resultant miseries that we have identified within ourselves. So that's why this affliction, this particular affliction that we are calling self-grasping, and maybe from a Bodhisattva perspective, self-cherishing, self, self, self-centeredness, sorry, self-centeredness, they need to be identified clearly, not in a wishy-washy way, not in a, what do you call, kind of uh, approximate way, but rather very clearly, so that we could make a distinction between self-cherishing and self-centeredness, self-love and self-centeredness, and how it is different from honoring others or cherishing others. What makes one cherishing others, one makes one self-centeredness, how it is different from self-love, self-care, self-concern, as opposed to self-centeredness. That needs to be figured out very clearly in our own experiences, but at the same time, as much relying on authentic sources, if possible, in the words of the Buddha himself. Only then we can tell. Once the, the causal relationship is identified, only then now we have the, the prospect of really checking if freedom from that cause is possible or not. And how, how can we attain liberation? So the book goes on. And this is a very, and yeah, that, that's the reason why as much as we are focusing on developing love, compassion, bodhicitta, and the related excellences, good qualities of the heart, and likewise, from among the afflictions, as much as we work against anger, jealousy, greed, malice, self-centeredness, etc., which are all belonging to the emotional component of the, of the afflictions or of the mental states, be that positive or, or negative we should as much be paying attention, if not more, to the so-called afflictions which are grouped as views. View, view type, for lack of a better term, I just have to say view. I don't know if that's coming across clear or not. Of course, for you... So among the six root afflictions, if we count six, then the first five are emotions, right? If afflicted emotions, afflicted as they are, they are also emotions. But the fifth, 
the sixth one view so called view which has itself sub uh, divisions five of them they fall into what we call the view type of afflictions they are not emotional but they are harder to tackle and they are at least some of them at, at least the mari the, the jikta the identity what do we call that yeah we a personal identity that is that together with the other view type afflictions are in general comparatively harder to identify and have less choice of antidotes it's like for them for something to really work as an antidote has to be one to one something that is diametrically opposite to them which means to have first identified it and then identify what is its opposite and that's kind of tackle it with its exact opposite mindset whereas in the case of love compassion and understanding in the ways of generating it we can generate it in so many ways and in dealing with their opposites like anger jealousy greed there can be several means of doing so but unless and until we tackle the self grasping component within within the complex of anger within the complex of a particular affliction at least in the case of the settled ones they always have a composed a, a, a com- component in them which is self grasping without dealing with it the other ways of dealing with it would only go so far it's like leaving the core out there and dealing with the fields yes you can get the fields off fields off fields off but it keeps growing keeps growing because the seed is there and these view type afflictions have certain qualities of firmness for certainty of stubbornness of 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 even supported by or not not even supported by even involving certain kind of intelligence all of those that makes it harder to really tackle and tackling it also leaves us with very limited resources and unless we tackle them all our efforts will only go so far they will never reach to the point of uprooting the afflictions at all that part we have to really keep in mind and thus thus make as much effort effort and put uh endeavor in 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 unpacking that that component of the afflictions and that is like uh um his holiness the dalai lama very often quotes uh chandrakirti's word translation uh, word commentary on on mula 
Madhyamika Karika called Clear Word, where there is a mention of saying that which attacks anger will not attack jealousy. That which attacks anger will not attack will, will not be an antidote to to attachment. That which is an antidote to attachment is not going to be an antidote to anger. Which means what you're using against, if it only stays within the soft antidote level, then it will only be able to deal with just one particular affliction, not the others. That will not apply to the others. Whereas if we go deep down and then with whatever effort we can uh, at least make effort in, 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 even if it may be just uh, dodging, just pushing or whatever, uh, bumping or kind of pushing uh, the, the self-grasping uh, and self-centeredness, we should do that. Because that will go so far in dealing with all of the other proteges that depend on it. So that is very important to uh, uh, keep in mind. So these, to answer this, we must understand our mind, which is the basis of the basis for samsara and nirvana. So all of these relates to our mind and knowing our mind and its potential. As sentient beings, beings with mind that are still obscured, we have great potential. Our greatest potential being to become fully awakened, Buddhas, omniscient beings who have the wisdom, compassion, power, and skillful means to be of the greatest benefit to all. That's what His Holiness is referring to when he says, very often he says, it's very difficult to generate to 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 uh, overcome afflictions, but in one sense it's very easy. Also, all it takes is just getting the boss, and that's all. <laughs> Get hold of the boss; everyone will, else will surrender. It's within our reach. It and the work has to be done just within us here and now, right? Within us. Wherever we go, we can do that work. And all it takes is just exposing, identifying self-grasping, exposing it like that. So, very often I heard him saying, it's very difficult, but on the other hand, it is also very easy. <laughs> so technically speaking, we speak of the possibility of fully be becoming fully awakened in much much shorter time than the, than we are used to hearing of so many eons. <laughs> That's because it's dealing with the mind, which is always with us, and in in identifying the core responsible uh, element in it and dealing with it thoroughly. That's all it takes. So we have that potential. But here, when we speak of mind's potential, we need to first agree if we have mind or not. 
I know I have mine, but I don't know whether you have. <laughs> but and the same thing you will think. I I know I have mine, but I, I can't really say if they have mine, <laughs> or maybe not to that to that radical extent. But that's how. Who was that? Kant became his. Was it Kant? Descartes. Descartes. Oh, yeah. Descartes. Uh, began his his philosophical research. I think, therefore, I am. <laughs> so that he cannot deny. He could not deny all the rest. He was suspecting. <laughs> okay. And one thing about the mind's potential in terms of being able to achieve all of this is. Is based on the based on the assumption. Let's not, not jump to say based on the fact, but based on the assumption that the mind's very nature is not diluted, not defiled. As many afflictions as may, as there may be, and how readily available they may be, they are just uh, adventitious parts, removable parts of the mind. In a way, even the afflictions themselves are made of mental, mental, if you will, mental substances or mental elements, and thus all it takes is just clearing the dirt off of it and reveal its purity. So not even getting rid of them. It's not like anger is some, somewhere here, and when it, it manifests, it manifests. When it is not manifest, it's somewhere lurking, it always remains as anger. It's not like that. The potential we may have in generating it, but when it subsides, subsides in the sense of kind of become dormant, it's not that there's still a lingering form of it somewhere kept, and so with other afflictions. It's the same mind quality, mind substance, that kind of out because of that potential takes turn in takes turn takes turn in in coming on coming up on the stage <laughs> so we have to first establish the fact that yes that is definitely the case the mind is not what do you call defiled through and through so much so that when we speak of taking away the defilements, it would involve taking away the mind itself. It's not like that. So how do we know that? We sometimes say, oh, it's, it's easy, because we do not get angry every time. We do not get attached attachment every time. But what about self-grasping? We are almost always... Although it's very difficult. In the text, it, it, it says, giving us hope that it's not always that we generate self-grasping. But it's so difficult to say whether we, have self, whether we do not have self-grasping at any given time when we deal with or think with anything. So if, at least that is the case for most of the time, then how are we to really accept the fact that 
the mind is in its very essence, in its very nature, free from afflictions. His Holiness the Dalai Lama, in one of the teachings I've heard, he may have done it in other ones, suggests suggest validating this this claim of there being a mind which in its nature is mere luminosity and mere knowing by asking us to do to to look at our our mind the first thing in the morning when we are awake but not fully awake when we have not yet reached out to coffee the coffee is just sitting there or just brewing there <laughs> or, or tea <laughs> so when we are awake but not fully awake at that time unless we are worried concerned about some really big problem which when it is the case that the first thing when we think of would be that problem but when we are fortunate enough or fortunate enough to not be in such a situation, or, or capable to kind of really uh, keep ourselves from succumbing to such afflictions the first thing in the morning, then he suggests uh, doing a mental mind watch kind of meditation and, and attest to this, this prospect of seeing mind in its mere luminosity, mere knowing nature, with no particular content except its its vacuity and getting in touch with its mere knowing, mere reflect, mere knowing, mere aware and luminous nature. So here when we speak of luminous and knowing nature, I think I think we are speaking of something like a mirror reflecting anything that is that it is faced with. Yet at the same time, uh, conjoined with a sense of sense of perceiving it, sense of connecting with it. That is very essential in, in what we call mind as a quality to have. So these days, uh, we have to be careful when people say plants know, neurons see, neurons uh, whatever. We use that term, but we have to be very careful uh, not to be carried away by it, whether that's, we have to be open to check if that actually is the case. If there's any knowing going, thinking going, sensing is a little tricky. This could be applied both to mechanical and not mechanical, but knowing, thinking, planning, calculating, oh, calculation can be done. <laughs> All of those may or may not be happening with just mere neurons because it may be, not just maybe, but even at the admission of the scientists, neuroscientists themselves, it is doing that kind of a connection through electrical charges and chemical elements, but not so much of a 
knowing or thinking or doing it voluntarily. Even allowing certain amount of that to the neurons as, as such, what about when what about when people are going through very different uh, unconventional situations? Like being in coma for so long, in some cases years together and coming out and happenings in the operation theatres and the very fact that uh, we have very, very deep-seated different dispositions despite being born in one family or even from one single uh, zygote. (laughs) So that part is uh, very important. That part is very crucial. The natural quality of mind is its ability to cognize object. This capacity. So here we say cognize object, which here we are speaking of all all types of mind, be they afflicted or not, be they compassionate, anger, hatred, or be that of view type, etc. They have this ability of, to cognize object. Cognize object in the sense of not just merely reflecting like in a mirror, but at the same time being able to, or additionally being able to, able to kind of, kind of experience it, perceive it, experience it, connect with it, with, with, uh, with, uh, with, with a difference in, in, in the way we connect. In, by way of sensing it, seeing it. This capacity to be aware of and to know objects is already present. It does not have to be newly cultivated. It is, it's, it is in its inherent nature. <laughs> this is where we can conventionally use the term inhere. Right? The mind inheres these qualities but it doesn't have to be inherently existing. But the question is, how in the world is their mind in the first place? But for now, we don't have to struggle so much about it. We know that we have it, we experience it, and go from there and leave leave it to another time. Or maybe wait until we become fully awakened. All will be answered. <laughs> but there are bigger than life questions, like how in the world there is something rather than nothing in the first place. Very often people say, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> I just happened to be here. And here I'm subjected to all the afflictions. How unfair. <laughs> So those need to be looked into, to be really grounded and, and, and rooted in an unshakable way.
be that in terms of having faith in the Buddha, or be that in terms of having a conviction within oneself to really, to really get moving. Not feel like moving, but really get moving. We have already directed ourselves in the right direction. Now, now the only thing is moving. <laughs> and moving happens only when actual mechanism is built within us. Nevertheless, various obstructions can inhibit the mind from cognizing objects. When these are eliminated, the mind will have no difficulty knowing all the phenomena. So from a Buddhist perspective, particularly from the, from the Prasangika Madhyamika perspective, as it is called the cognitive obscuration, obscuration to knowing all. We point to, the Prasangikas point, ultimately point to the paksha, the, 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 the subtle instincts or traces of the self-grasping, not even the self-grasping itself. It could have been completely rooted and rendered irre- irreversible, unmanifestable, even from the very roots, but so long as it's very subtle trace, like that of, like that of uh, onion, right, is remaining, that will come in the way of our becoming fully awakened. Sometimes we have to think about it. Does it have? Does it have this function of obstructing us from knowing everything? Or even take it a little easier level of seeing whether the the grasping itself itself is is keeping us from seeing the reality as it is. First and foremost, we have to see self grasping is mistaken. state of mind, should be able to expose that, see through it, and then see whether allowing that, whether having that in, in one's mind state keeps us from seeing any, any, keeps us from seeing everything there is. Once we have exposed it as mistaken then, yes, we could uh, vindicate the fact that, yes, it does obstruct us from seeing the reality. But then connect it to how that can, that or its, its subtle traces can be in the way of knowing everything. So we have to, we have to kind of also check the connection between the two in our own experiences also. Not just grapple with the more coarse afflictions like anger, jealousy, greed. Those are easier to be seen, but not self-grasping. Particularly when it comes in its own form, in its own full form, not as a combination within something.
Okay. Mm. I think. Okay, let's push through the text a little bit further. Nevertheless, various obstructions can inhibit the mind from cognizing objects. When these are eliminated, the mind will have no difficulty knowing all phenomena. It is not as simple as it may sound here. Right? One type of obstruction is the physical matter of all obstructs us from seeing what is beyond it. When the wall is removed, or when we run to the wall and go around it, <laughs> our visual consciousness can see what is there. A second obstruction is distance and size. The object is too far away or too small for our cognitive faculties to come in contact with it. To some extent, telescopes, microscopes have helped alleviate this difficulty. In these cases, we can know the object not because the mind has become clearer and better, and better able to apprehend the ob object, but because the object is brought within the range of our oper operable cognitive faculties. I guess uh, I will not rush through it because I have uh, s several <laughs> rounds to make. And any 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 questions, comments so far? So far, so good. Oh. <laughs> Pardon? Yes, please. Uh, do you have a microphone? Just trying to remember if <clears throat> when we hear the story of the Buddha saying how ridiculous it is to like, if you have an arrow in you to ask where was it made and da 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 da, -da you know. Is, is the idea of the question of is the mind where did the mind come from or all that doesn't that fall kind of into that category yes that that falls in that category that's why I said uh, we could keep that aside for a while <laughs> but deal with what the reality is within us and and the most important ones are the view type uh, afflictions, because once we can gravel uh, and kind of detect them and see through their their devices, then expose their devices, then we would go farther, much farther ahead in dealing with our other identifiable afflictions. While at the same time we we'll, we deal with them, but also not forget about dealing with uh, the view type afflictions. Mm -hmm. You've spoken a lot about identifying these levels of afflictions and self-grasping, mm -hmm. and uh, you mentioned that mm, there are moments where we don't have it, and 
many years ago, I asked um, Kinzer John Patek joke about that, and I explained to him that I used to go to the symphony a lot, and they'd be sitting there just listening, and it'd be one experience, and then there would come the mind that kind of wanted to own this experience. Like, I want to go buy the CD, I want to, you know, just kind of something shifted. He said that was an example of, I asked him if this was an example of that. Mm-hmm. And he said, yes. Do you think that's too gross? Seems kind of... Yeah, it would come It would come in strong, gross, uh, intensive forms that would be more easier to identify. But it, it it's not always like that. It's not always like that. It could come in a subtle, creepy way also. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but the scriptures claim that, yes, there generally can be three types of mind with regard to, with regard to, un, with regard to understanding emptiness or with regard to self-grasping. Either you'll be, either you'll be grasping at the self, or you will not be, but not doing anything else, or you'll be seeing its very opposite, emptiness. But that will only happen. That's not what everybody has. That's when somebody has to work to understand it. Then the third, third new, new thing will come. Until then, we will have to deal with only these two. But this one, I have very great difficulty in saying, yes, this is the moment when I have just this, not this, mixed with this one. Grasping could come in very subtle forms because just about anything that we that that appear to us they appear uh, it, as as at least it is claimed in the scriptures that that as far as appearing appearing in, as inherently existent we cannot uh, we cannot help but have it and and that happens until. Until the very last, what do you call? Until the very, very last stage of sentient, sentient being would. <laughs> not quite at that very last tip. Last tip, we would not have completely eliminated it, but we will not have, have we will not have that, and that will be the starting point of not having it. And the next moment will be will be fully awakened. But until then, we cannot help but have that all the time when we are thinking, seeing, worrying, whatever. Now, how much do we grasp at that and hold on to it, holding that with the mental mind? That is quite difficult to tell. And for that, first and foremost. Identifying what it entails to really grasp at self, what is this self would look like, which is being negated, has to be understood squarely, not just little piece, but squarely. Squarely in the sense that when you can uphold it, you can at the same time fully be uh, able to um, verify the the authenticity of of conventional reality and that 
that that that the two are kind of built into each each, each other. Ability to be able to um, recognize when grasping is happening or not grasping, like built into some some sort of meditative concentration. Is there some? You know, there's so many paths of different ways of of meditation to realize it. Is is that also taught how to recognize this in the mind, or is it an object or a aspiration of a meditative practice that we could aspire for? Mm-hmm. Because about the same time we were studying this, with Venerable Tarp is mentioning, I mean, we were really trying to find that moment. Yeah, yeah. And, mm, but is but is it something at some stage in practice where you can assume that that's what you will be able to recognize when you're grasping or not grasping and, and know that as an antidote to be able to separate from it? One thing His Holiness suggests uh, in in dealing with this is to be very, very clear and yeah, to be very clear and, and confident in the viability of the conventionalities, the infallibility of causality to be very, very clear and confident of it. Because it's like preparing for that moment of now being able to separate the, the, the mistaken appearance and the reality apart. Because in terms of actual happening, the scriptures say that first you have to negate the object of negation, negate the inherent existence. But that negating in a way that really kind of uh, fits the equation uh, would be supported by having 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 ascertained the infallibility and having generated the confidence in the in the reality of con- conventional functions. Although that awareness of real, the realities, conventional realities being, being appearing as inherent existence, but not so, that teasing out will happen only after having negated the object. But that could come in a much more assuring, unerring way when one has done the work in beforehand, uh, along with pursuing uh, this correct view in assuring that yes, there is causality, unbudging, unfailing causality, be that in terms of external world or internal world. He really stresses that. He really shares that as a tool as a tool by which one could tell the two apart. Tell the two apart means seeing the cup as it is and seeing the cup as inherent existence.
as being two things, not just one, lumped together. But more as an inference, Yeshiva? But, pardon? More of an inference, like deeply conceptually understanding that, or it actually. Oh, no, no, no. All of this boils down to really eventually integrating and then be making it into a gut feeling, gut level feeling. Yeah, with regard to just about the unsatisfactory nature of samsara as well, as well as, well as it's being its cause, the, the causal relationship, those all have to be kind of uh, uh, worked on to really uh, feel at the gut level. And so is this, this uh, thing about causality in not just in general, but more specifically about the workings of mind and more particularly our conditions, our conditions that we are in to whatever the causes the scriptures point to and to be able to really link them. Yes, and that, and that it is, and that things are relative, not in a cheap sense, in the sense of everything goes but rather, it is it is kind of linked to specific causes. Why? Remember Gishi Ishitakela's teaching, right? The, the causes have to be fulfilling the three criteria, right? Miyue, miyue kyu, mitabe kyu, miyue kyen, mitabe kyen, nube one has to kind of connect some some result to a cause that is des- that that is deserving of that status by virtue of its being by virtue of its being uh, it's it's being impermanent itself but at the same time possessing of that potential concordant potential and not just uh, not just Happening not just not just a matter of mere wishing, mere mere uh, aspiring, but rather a, a kind of a, a real concrete uh, presence there, and and then connect that with the result. See the uh, infallibility of the causal relationship, and then and then by extension, uh, kind of connect them with our prior existence. Yes. Yes, yes. Okay, I think that should be fine. Are you fine with it? You can... Okay, let's make this the last question and we'll stop here. Can you explain how does the Buddha have emotions? <laughs> because he has great compassion. Okay. And he has bodhicitta. <laughs> he has love. He has immeasurable love, compassion, all of those. He's the most compassionate one. How does he suffer with, like, how does... He and sentient beings... Um... Share in joy and suffering. Yeah. Suffering here in the sense that when we do something 
some, something unbecoming, then it displeases him. It displeases her. That would be an unpleasant feeling, which Buddhas don't have. Well, not in a negative sense. Unpleasant, uh, unpleasant, in a way, unpleasant, not involuntarily imposed on them. One, that that makes it a very big difference between our unpleasantness and that kind of unpleasantness, because that's a voluntarily. In 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 the Buddha's case, it's a spontaneously, voluntarily, taken on to himself. So that kind of a unpleasantness has a strength within it and, and has no, in a way, what do you call it? Yeah, in a way it doesn't have all those qualities that we associate with suffering or with, we associate it with, with pain or sorrow. Just a mere disapproval or mere unpleasantness. How? Oh, wish they, couldn't, they didn't do it. Something like that. And goes away. I imagine like that. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I can say that, but not the unpleasant that we know of. <laughs> Maybe we will stop here.